The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's wonderful to have you with us. And I'm delighted that uh, we are going to be bringing you some fabulous tales this evening, including uh, a very significant story all around the future of multi-choice. Uh, multi-choice, of course, is uh, the biggest provider of satellite television services across the African continent. Um, and it has been, yeah, it's been an enormously successful uh, uh, successful um, entity and uh, we yeah interesting to see whether or not the French can pull it off Jan Vermeulen edited my broadband with us this evening we'll also get the views of Rudy van der about this and the, the astonishing standoff at the Bank of England today as it became the second central bank in the world uh, to postpone cutting interest rates and not give any clear indication as to when they would come Peter Atod Montalto giving us a preview of what's likely to come over the next very very busy period and next three weeks are extraordinarily busy uh, in terms of State of the Nation this time next week, followed by budget, followed by all of the analysis. Uh, we got a very I think also quite a downbeat picture of um, the prospects of global wine producers, in particular South African wine um, and I found yeah, that I found that the analysis a bit, a bit depressing, but uh, somebody who produces very, very high-end wine, very good wine um, is a, a is a, a well-known South African winemaker and Mike Ratliff will be joining us this evening. He, um, his family for years was involved at the uh, astonishingly gorgeous Warwick Wine Estate um, and they have uh, subsequently sold out of that and he still produces wine with American partners. It's the kind of wine he makes, um, or his team makes, are certainly doing okay. Um, we'll pick up on that this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. You can call us, of course, on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. You can WhatsApp us also. Uh, send us a WhatsApp voice not a note. A voice not? No, not a voice not, but a voice note on 072-702-1702. Let's go first to Jan Vermeulen this evening. Bonsoir, Jan Vermeulen. I think we're going to have to start watching DSTV with English subtitles into the future. If France's Canal Plus... Um, gets its deal across the line. It's 105 rand a share. It's offering for multi-choice, a premium of 40% on yesterday's closing price. The share, though, not trading at or any... Bruce is on The Money Show. 
Now, I'm sorry about that. Uh, occasional little technical hiccups. Uh, Jan Vermeulen, who is with my broadband, uh, is my guest this evening. I don't know which part of that you heard, but a, a French takeover of MultiChoice, a multi-billion rand deal. It values the company at about 40 billion rand. There's a nice premium on offer here, Jan. Indeed. Uh, good evening, Bruce. And as you said, bonsoir. It might be necessary to expand our linguistic horizons here at the southern tip of Africa. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a nice 40% premium that they're offering on the closing price um, at, uh, from yesterday, which was actually quite low. It was at 75 rand per share. Um, but if you kind of take the premium into account, and I've been trying to calculate the kind of average buy-in price, uh, that Canal Plus has, has uh, you know, uh, bought multi-choice shares at over the last few years because they actually already own an over 30% stake of the company, which they've, um, they've, they've had a creeping takeover, really, of, of multi-choice over the past three or four years. And, uh, and the, the, the price that they're getting for it now um, is about, you know, on average, what they've been, what they've been paying over the last you know, they, they've been, they bought a couple of shares at, say, around 88 Rand and they've bought a couple of shares at, say, 130 Rand. Just looking at the chart, obviously, they've not confirmed any of this. And, um, and so the price that they, they're getting here is actually quite a good one for them, considering how much they've been paying um, over the last few years to, to pick up the 30% stake they already own. Uh, it's it's yeah. It, it looks like a very good deal from their perspective, and they've certainly been very determined, as you say, nibbling at the edges for quite some time, and now very keen to devour the entire business and making a very compelling looking offer of 105 rand a share, that 40% premium on yesterday's closing price. Um, when we look at it, though, the question here is the rules around foreign ownership of media assets. Right. South Africa's always had very very stringent rules on airlines and this time around it's a media asset there haven't been many listed on the stock exchange so i don't know if this has ever been an issue before but i think the current ceiling is 20 percent voting rights maximum by foreign shareholders yes and uh, there's all kinds of debates about how they might approach this because maybe you know it'd be like 20 percent voting rights for multi-choice south africa but for the group that operates across the whole continent. Maybe there's a way around that. And, um, and yes, uh, you know, they, they, where they've come now with the, the offer because they were skirting or, or getting to a stage in terms of our, in terms of our regulations where they were going to have to make a, a buyout offer or stop, you know, stop buying. They, they, they can't just buy up 100% of the issued shares on the open market. They, they get to a stage where when you've got a significant shareholding, you've got to make a, an, an offer to buy the whole company or, or stop. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think the take the takeover the takeover rules say once you get to thirty five percent, you're obliged Correct. to make an offer, and they were sitting at about thirty one percent, and Correct. so the securities regulation panel rules say you've got to make an offer. But 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 the the rules around media ownership though are a little bit more complicated than that, aren't they? Yes, uh, and so uh, the the ECA, the Electronic Communications Act has stipulations in there that say um, that it can't be more than 20%. And um, uh, MultiChoice's own memorandum of incorporation, because when we asked them about this, I think it was last year, when the, con- the concerns about um, their 30% stake first started coming up, MultiChoice said, no, 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 it's not a problem. Our memorandum of incorporation already says that foreign shareholders can't have more than 20% voting rights, so it's not an issue. Uh, but if the, if Canal Plus wants the whole company, they're definitely going to want more than 20% votes. 
So um, how exactly they, they bite around that remains to be seen. But they've come to the to the table with you know all kinds of uh, all kinds of sugar to sweeten the pot, um, like a, a um, of you know of their, their spun out they're they're spinning out uh, a part of the business um, um, over in France, and they they're talking about listing that that foreign company here on the JC board, which the JC will be quite happy about. So um, there's, there's all kinds of um, uh, ways, you know, all kinds of things that it wants to offer. And uh, I think, all, you know, things that potentially can be done with a deal so that we obey the, so that they obey the ECA, um, but that they, you know, don't just get locked out of the, the, the company that they own 100% of. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting. Do we know anything about Canal Plus's ambitions? They are, I mean, there's a long French colonial history on the African continent, of course. Very many Africans speak French, and so it becomes a strategy there. But it, again, it's it really is a question of massive demographic opportunity, um, a massive sporting opportunity, and the prospect of growing disposable income on the African continent, which make the luxury of pay TV on this continent um, quite, a, 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 quite a good bet, really. Yes, and uh, this is where we get into more speculative territory, right? So, so firstly, um, uh, Canal Plus already has uh, quite a... Quite a uh, uh, a compelling offering across Francophone Africa. So they don't want multi-choice for French-speaking Africa. They want multi-choice for something else. And you've already alluded to it, Supersport is second to none in the world in terms of uh, what it's able to offer. Um, uh, that, that's one aspect of it. And, um, and so, um, you know, we were maybe, you know, kicking around the idea that some of these foreign companies um, are looking at Africa and going, this is the next big growth area in the world is it the right time now to get in and and so now you you place your bets uh, because if you're too early um then you lose and if you're too late you lose um so but if you pick your time and you pick it right then they could they could essentially be getting a, an almost like a 10 cent um like what nice patch got with 10 cent you know you come in Ooh, that's and a, right now that's a Big. That's a big statement. That's a yeah. big statement, Jan. I'm curious as to uh, how you make that correlation because, of course, um, the, yeah, DSTV, well, Mnet, DSTV, and MultiChoice are all part of Chris Becker's original MBA, um, and then right. he became chief executive of Nasbars. He then went and spent. $32 million to buy a 48% stake in Tencent. And that $32 million today, I think, is worth a trillion rand or something insane. It really is yes. an incredible return on investment. Your bet is that this investment no, not, not could all. be... No, not at all. I'm saying their bet. Oh, might. okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, because if, no, if that's, if that's the case, then nobody <laughs> should sell to the French. Hold on for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but obviously that that won't be up to um, that won't that'll be up to the board, and obviously the um, and and so the the minority shareholders won't won't have a lot of uh, a lot of say uh, when it comes to the vote. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean the the, the thing is um, this this is a huge risk. Make no mistake. Um, you could you could uh, make this bet, and and it, you could look like an utter fool at the end of it because the the African growth story just doesn't kick off in the way that you expect, or you can look like a genius at the end of this. And so, um, th look, that's, that's possible ambition that they might have, is that they've seen Comcast, 
looking at multi-choice because Comcast has invested in Showmax. So, uh, so multi-choice has essentially spun out its streaming service, Showmax, into a separate company. Um, it owns 70% of that company, and Comcast, through NBC Universal, owns 30, 30% of that company. Um, and so, those, and those two are fierce rivals, Comcast and Vivendi. Um, are, are fierce rivals. And so these are two companies, two massive multinational companies that are courting multi-choice. And so one has to ask, well, what, are they, what are they seeing? What is multi-choice potentially doing right? But then, you know, on the flip side of this, so to, to, as a counter to the, the perspective I was just giving about, you know, this massive African success story that people are betting on, Amazon has pulled out of Africa in terms of producing original content here to redouble their focus in Europe. And so while there are um, big uh, multinational media conglomerates who are looking at Africa and going, that's where the next growth is coming from, you've got another um, company with big media ambitions and deep pockets in the form of Amazon going, no, we're not convinced. We're, we're pulling out our original production out of the, yeah. out of the continent. And so um, there's those mixed signals. But also multi-choice has firmly pegged its future revenue growth on the success story of Africa. And so, um, you know, maybe in, in Canal Plus, they've, they've found somebody with similar ambitions and who is willing to take a similar risk. Um, because, yeah, I mean, uh, if Showmax's growth story across the continent does not take off, then multi-choice's revenue growth does not look nearly as good as what they've promised investors. And the share price certainly won't look as good either. Absolutely. Jan Vermeulen, thank you. Edited my broadband. And yes, the one thing, of course, that um, multi-choice has got an advantage over everybody else is an enormous amount of experience in African markets. I recall a story Robbie Brosen told me about how in their early days of their expansion into the UK, they, they got a bit despondent and they weren't really cutting it. And they were quite apprehensive about whether or not they should continue in the UK. And they decided, um, Robbie Robbie Brosen and his financial backer at the time and a business partner um, was Dick Enthoven, the late Dick Enthoven, uh, who had started Hollard Insurance and has provided seed capital for a whole host of other great South African businesses. And so he and Dick Enthoven were in the UK walking around and they'd just been to see a potential buyer. And uh, they were really, I think, long in the face about this decision, but they thought this would be the right thing. And they went to go and see a potential buyer. And Robbie describes him as a real operator. And at this, this stage, they were very um, lacked confidence about their capacity to be operators in the UK market of of restaurants. And um, yeah, Dick Enthoven said, well, you know what? If a real operator wants to buy this business and thinks they can make something of it, Perhaps we should rethink. And that's always, I suppose, the question when you've got a takeover offer. Uh, in, in the case of AB InBev and SAB Miller, AB InBev came and paid far too much for SAB Miller at the time. It was the biggest corporate deal in the history of the London Stock Exchange. What was it, £100 billion or something? Um, and they paid £46 because of the London listing, of course, of, of SAB Miller. And to this day, AB InBev is no, were the entire AB InBev is worth less than it paid for SAB Miller. Takeovers are not easy. Takeovers are very, very difficult. And are takeovers always in the best interests of shareholders? Let's get a view from our market commentator. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. 
the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. Aptus a registered FSP. The Money Show. The Markets. And that market commentator is none other than Rudy Fandamarva, Portfolio Manager at Works. And I think those are two nice little tales to sort of tie together and say, you know, in whose best interests is a Canal Plus takeover of multi-choice, Rudy? Evening, Bruce. It's going to be interesting to see, and I suppose we'll only really know in hindsight. Certainly, Canal Plus seems to think it's going to be in their best interest. Um, it's, it's hard to, to say how this, this rolls out. You know, there absolutely are risks. Uh, just looking at what the consensus target price, so the, the sort of consensus valuation for multi-choice before this transaction was about 108 rand a share. So it's not far off what the current, what the current offer is. Um, and it, it hasn't been a, a super exciting performer to date. So uh, if one just looks at the history, then, then maybe this isn't a bad deal. But there certainly is is potential in Africa. It's the one geography in the world where the population is growing. Everywhere else, the population is shrinking. And it's got quite a... Uh, the, the population is, I think, an emerging consumer of, of, of content. Uh, so there's a, a lot of legs to that theme, one, one would have thought. Um, so I think if one's prepared to take a long-term view, there must be further upside uh, to this to this space, uh, one would hope that as South African investors, you get the opportunity of, of a Canal Plus listing, which has been hinted at, I think, um, and that might be a yeah. nice way for people to participate in a in a more diversified exposure to the African continent. Yeah, and again, to, to global media, you get a global, if you can list a, uh, the, the Canal Plus business on the JSE as a secondary listing, um, you get access then to a, a much broader swathe of, of, of content opportunities. Please explain to me this idea of a consensus forecast, because you say the consensus forecast suggests it's worth 108 Rand, um, and Canal Plus is offering 105 Rand. But yesterday, the share price was trading at 60-something Rand, so the price and the value that the market was putting on on DSTV was 60-something bucks, not 108 bucks, and it was going to take yonks to get to that indicative price. Uh, and it's just there's this huge disconnect between what people are prepared to pay today, what the market thinks it's worth, and what investors or buyers are having to stump up if they want to do something like a takeover. Well, Bruce, there's typically a certain amount of analysts in the market that cover the, the various of the, of the major shares. Uh, they pass through their forecasts typically to to big producers of news media, places like FactSet and Bloomberg and Reuters and so forth, um, who often collate that information and they would come up with you know, target prices. Or, or very often they'll actually list the target prices of the various of the various analysts, um, and then typically the average of that then would be a consensus target price. So that's where people expect the value to be pretty much twelve months from now. Uh, those those ratings can vary materially from the current price, depending on on what analysts are, are building into their expectations. You know whether they're building in a conducive economic environment or significant growth in that environment, or whatever the case may be. So it's not always a fair reflection of I mean, analysts who you know, get it right as often as they get it wrong. And uh, on some companies, <laughs> those margins can be very big. So. Things like Naspash, for example, the target prices are, are probably a long way from, from from the current price. But uh, you know, a lot of 
uh, highly traded and highly analyzed companies, which this isn't, uh, you know, the, 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 I think that gap tends to be smaller. So in, in companies that are less traded, there's very often less analytical coverage. Um, and one could argue possibly that the depth of that coverage isn't quite as, as material and, and, and that might explain a, a portion of that gap between okay. the target price and, and what the market treats it at. Thank you. Um, and then two of the world's most influential central banks today, well, last night, the, um, the the Central Bank of the United States, of course, and today the Bank of England, which is the Central Bank of the United Kingdom, both deciding to keep interest rates unchanged. And Jerome Powell at the US Fed last night was sort of almost like walking backwards a little bit from his quite bullish tone at the last meeting of the US Fed, where he implied, and the market, well, the market thought he implied, rate cuts were going to be coming really soon. Last night, he implied they're coming, just not really soon. And then the Bank of England today was really weird because they announced that the Monetary Policy Committee had voted to keep rates flat, but there was a three-way split in opinions. Um, the nine members of the MPC, or the Monetary Policy Committee, six members, including the governor, Andrew Bailey, voted to keep rates on hold. Two wanted to increase interest rates and one of them wanted to cut interest rates. And you've got this huge divergence in a fairly homogenous group of people, you would think, all looking at the same information with very different views on the future of inflation and the direction of interest rates. It is very interesting, Bruce. Certainly, I think there has been a split for, for some time in terms of if one actually goes and listens to the meetings of the central banks and hears what they say uh, and compares that to what gets reported in the media the next day, you often find a, a more rosy-colored view coming through the news than, than is necessarily broadcast in the actual meetings. And uh, you know, the, the, I think central bankers have been quite careful about saying you know, they'll cut rates when they see evidence that interest rates uh, or that inflation is headed uh, back to target levels and that it's uh, that's a sustainable path. So uh, I think there's maybe a bit of a narrowing of that gap just at the moment. Um, but I think there's other, other things at play. One of them is that uh, central banks need these higher interest rates to actually get inflation under control. And if they promise that interest rate cuts are imminent, you know, the market effectively will reduce interest rates for them. Uh, so people yes, will exactly. reduce but the interest rates already done it, government they? debt. Yeah, market, the market it has to some extent, reduced its view. Yeah. It, it has, uh, which is, is already potentially undoing some of what central banks are trying to achieve. So I think, I think that's part yeah. of the problem. The other is that we're not absolutely certain yet that, in, that inflation dragon has been slayed. You know, they're, they're, we've seen wage settlements at very high levels the last while. Uh, and as I mentioned before, we've got a lot of debt issuance coming this year. And if interest rates aren't sufficiently high, central banks are going to, or certainly treasuries are going to struggle to place sufficient debt to, to fund the operations. It's so interesting. HSBC yesterday issued a, a report around consumer confidence in South Africa. And the one thing that will keep Lisecha Khanyaho awake at night at the South African Reserve Bank is that 60-something percent of South Africans surveyed by HSBC are expecting wage settlements higher than 5%. And, you know, you think, well, that's not very much. But my goodness me, the cumulative effect of that is is pretty strong. And that's what the, that, that's what the Reserve Bank is allergic to, isn't it? the expectation of above inflation rate hikes and ultimately drive inflation up 
as well. And that's a concern, isn't it? It is absolutely a concern, and it's a concern for, for other central banks as well. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we're in a constrained economic environment, so tax receipts are going to be under pressure. Uh, and uh, the, the outlook for growth is constrained as a result of load shedding and port, port performance and so forth. Um, so that means our, our fiscal situation deteriorates. You know, we just need a slight movement in the wrong direction of all the variables and all of a sudden you've got a big chunk of unfunded liability and, and that means higher rates, not not lower rates unfortunately. Rudy Fandamarva, thank you very much indeed. He is a portfolio manager at AdviceWorks. It's Eyewitness News time now at half past six and here's Maki Molabo. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. It's wonderful to have you uh, with us tonight. And we've got Peter Atard Montalto standing by. He's Managing Director at Crutham. Used to be called Intellidex. And Mike Ratliff, the owner at Villafonte, will talk to us about how high-end South African is whining. Uh, how <laughs> high-end South African is whining. No, how high-end South African wine is doing um, on global markets in contrast to the quite downbeat perspective on the sort of more mass market stuff um, that Wines of South Africa was talking about earlier on this week. Uh, This time next week, uh, Thursday night, uh, Mandy Wiener and Clement Magnatella will be hosting a double header, uh, probably from Parliament. I'm sure they'll be at Parliament. They'll certainly be in the precinct. Um, and they will be previewing and then analysing, so doing a post-match analysis of the State of the Nation address. So there's no money show next Thursday. Uh, but you can expect the President to keep applying lipstick and glitter to anything he can dress up as good news. The State of the Nation, the, the last before what many are hoping are going to be a bruising election for the ANC and then well, that will be followed up by the budget and a whole bunch of excellent um, excellent uh, sort of key data points for South Africa and it's kind of a bit of policy speech making and it's also electioneering on an industrial scale this time around Peter. thing about February is what moves the dial? Uh, where is there new news for investors, for markets? Uh, the scenario can offer I mean, we've had the 8th of January statement. We had that three World Cup, um, slightly painful uh, TV address, which turned into an election uh, pitch, where I think all these sorts of ideas, this review of the last 30 years, the last five years, uh, has been done. So Sonia is unlikely to offer any particularly new new, but the budget can offer quite a lot of very interesting information. Obviously, particularly people are watching the utilization uh, of things like the uh, foreign exchange currency reserve accounts, uh, things like Transnet, uh, things like fiscal rules, things like sticking to expenditure cuts. Uh, so there's a lot more juice, I think, in the, the budget probably for markets uh, than so. No, I mean, and Sona is, I mean, it's just the most vulgar, ostentatious, pre-Versailles feel to it, where you've got people traipsing down red carpets dressed as if they're going to some sort of fancy dress ball rather than to the state opening of Parliament. And in a, in a country as unequal as South Africa, it sickens me to my stomach. But that's a side issue. Um, yeah, and it, it gives the, the president an opportunity to, uh, one, um, offer a realistic picture of where the country is, 
is two to suggest what is happening to improve a dire situation for many, many people, and three to offer inspiration and hope. And I'm, I think our president, I'm not sure if in each of the states of the nation addresses that he's delivered since his time began, he's actually really hit the mark in terms of a very delicate balance of acknowledging failure and then giving a realistic solution. I think his first state of the nation was bullet trains and all sorts of other things that were, and, and smart cities and bullet trains. That was the the big, hairy, audacious goal of sort of uh, JFK-style 1961. And it was just laughable because it failed to address some fundamental issues for ordinary people. Yes. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Sonia is it is written by the same very tight team, but it's actually written in a very... I don't know quite how to describe it, communist way with all these different sorts of uh, inputs and everyone wants a little line here and there. every minister wants a line here on this and that. Uh, and that's why it can end up being quite a, a hodgepodge um, overall and why it's actually quite hard to do in that style and to, to actually um, deliver. I think though there's an interesting bar if you look at the NEC, the hot player in the last uh, uh, week, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a mission of failure coming in around the edges. I think the agency realizes for credibility they do need to do that. So maybe we do get a little bit more of an, an honest assessment next week than we might otherwise uh, have expected. Um, but I think the other problem, which we've talked about on the program so many times before, is kind of all things are sort of going on, right, on logistics, on electricity. We can debate the detail. So sort of actually mapping a, a different or a, a renewed or some sort of, uh, you know, uh, departure for a second term is actually quite hard, right, uh, in terms of, of what you say on that sort of thing. There are things they can say, you know, education is going to become more important. Uh, things like early childhood development, these sorts of more non-economic things may, may come to the fore a little bit more. But it's actually quite hard um, to, to say anything dramatically new on electricity or logistics, for instance. No, absolutely. But again, just an honest assessment of where we are. You know, you don't want the, your speech being fact-checked. And unfortunately, um, the fact-checkers are going to hold him to account, even if nobody else does. Um, uh, data is... There are not that many data points, I think, that are improving for South Africa at the moment. Um, and I, I wonder whether or not the, the speech will be able to really provide an upbeat view of the future of South Africa, at least in the short term? Well, I think it will try, and that's what we saw in the 8th of January statement, right? Uh, and that was fact-checked, actually, <laughs> to death, uh, and was found to be quite a mixed bag of, uh, of stuff that was on the mark versus stuff that, that wasn't. Um, but no, I think that's why you have to appeal to these sort of very long timelines uh, of, of progress and where there absolutely has been progress, right, in terms of building of housing, electrification, all those sorts of things. Um, and then it really becomes a debate, which I think is what this election period will really be about, of where you actually set the bar. Should you have actually have done more over 30 years, say, if you'd had the right housing policy and the right sort of financing of housing to do double what they did? You know, those, those sorts of things, I think, are actually quite interesting debates to, to be had and will be had uh, between, uh, between Sony and the election. Capital markets, of course, pay attention to the nuance, to the minutiae of the detail. They're always looking for signals, always looking for information that will um, trigger a signal, whether it's a buy or a sell signal. I wonder um, what you see as the outlook for capital markets over the next month based on the fact that we're going to have some fairly hard truths to face up to, if not in the state of the nation, because that's easier to sort of soft soap and finesse. The budget is where the, the rubber hits the road. 
Exactly, but we think a lot of people, actually, particularly locals and local asset managers, are actually far too bearish on fiscal uh, in general. Um, and we, we need to be careful here. Uh, fiscal certainly isn't in the place that it should be. It's certainly not in the place it maybe was envisioned in the budget last year. But revenue, for instance, is doing pretty well, maybe even slightly above the MTBPS target uh, in the end of this fiscal year and the next fiscal year, um, uh, albeit that's off a low base. Uh, Treasury is realizing the intra-year cuts they promised. There's big uncertainty on next year, and we look for credibility on that. The market is looking for credibility on that uh, going forwards. Uh, and they have a pretty diversified funding strategy, which means they probably can commit, and this is the big thing that moves markets or not, uh, probably can commit to keep um, SAGB uh, issuance, bond issuance flat through the next fiscal year, which would be a big win for Treasury if they can do that and can communicate to that to the market and get a, a bond rally off the back of it. But this is a very interesting budget because there are a lot of structural things happening. Normally we're in the weeds on this expenditure, that revenue bit. But some big structural things happening around fiscal rules uh, and, they, as I said before, this tapping of this account uh, as well to help with the repayment of, of debt in the coming years uh, actually can give it the fiscus a much lower risk vibe for markets, which we think is why, uh, through it all, it might, it might be slightly more positive for markets. Mm, okay, good. And then, of course, voters are watching. And I, I wonder just how seriously voters are going to be taking these various statements because you can sometimes take some of the stuff with a bit of a pinch of salt. And how important this next month is going to be in sort of identifying electoral choices or helping voters make choices for the future and how and whether or not the, the president, as some have speculated, will use the opportunity to announce an election date. I'm not sure that he would distract from a sonar with an election date because, yes, he get lots of coverage of the election date, but anything else he wants to put in, he, he wouldn't get the attention for, I suspect. Potentially, but he he has to actually, if we're going to have a May election, do a proclamation very, very quickly, actually, in the next week or so, or two weeks. Um, so, you know, the timetables are ticking, really. And actually, what's been very interesting, I think, is that the election campaign has been actually relatively quiet. Uh, there's been obviously some manifesto launches, some ANC events, but we've not had this big sort of public consultation of ideas, you know, parties saying, this is my agenda of the week on a, on a topic. That hasn't really happened. Uh, and I think that's partly a function of you know, lack of money in politics, actually, this cycle, um, but also the fact everyone's very tired and that, that a lot of people in the middle are actually contesting on the same ground. And that's why you've seen, I think, the tone of things like the January statement was very much about risk, right? If you go, if we end up you know, in, a, in, in a month's time, whatever, we compare, you know, manifestos of ANC, DA, BOSA, you know, uh, RISE, all the rest of it, uh, they're, they're all variations, I think, around the theme. And so it comes about risk, it comes about trust, it comes about governance. Uh, which are much harder and obviously more nuanced things uh, really to focus on as an, an electorate and why I think this election is going to be uh, so interesting. Thank you, Peter Atard Montalto, the Managing Director at Crutham, formerly known as Intellidex. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. And uh, wine we go. We had a fascinating but quite concerning discussion with wines of South Africa earlier this week about the global slump in wine demand. And, of course, South African international volumes down based on problems with exports at ports, high inflation pressure in other economies, and uh, some drop-off in demand because disposable income in households in many parts of the world is under a huge amount of pressure. But then we got an email from Mike Ratcliffe, the owner at Villa Fonte, and the uh, chair 
buyer at the Stell Wine route. And he said, the, but top-end wines, the top-end wines, the, the sort of wines that I'm guessing might Ratliff retail in South Africa like a thousand bucks a bottle, um, that segment is actually very, very resilient. Well, good evening, Bruce. Yes, um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say the thousand rand plus, but certainly the, the 500 rand plus bottles of wine. Uh, let's call them more nuanced artisanal products that are, are produced for a different kind of um, experience rather than just um, consumption. They're produced for pleasure, maybe for maturation, maybe for aging. And yes, they are um, showing much more resilience. And again, when when you talk about the, those those more crafted wines, perhaps I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming out of the Swartland, which is, I don't know, being treated with spells and heather, and I don't know what else they do with stuff. But um, they extract flavors from grapes that very few people are able to do, and that creates a huge amount of interest in sort of niche groups of of aficionados. Yeah, I mean, these are products that are playing to people that are seeking out experiences. They are uh, generally produced in, in small quantity. There's generally more demand than there is supply. And the same can, um, the same can be applied to many other regions from, uh, from the Himalayan, Elgin, all the different sub-regions in Stellenbosch. There are producers who are, who are large in number, but who collectively produce a small amount of the total product of South Africa. But they are having success in achieving much higher price points. And while what um, Morena from Wines of South Africa was saying is right, I just think that there's more of a nuance in looking at some of uh, the, the data around the South African wine industry just with a little bit of different context. Now, again, if you're if you are a distel now uh, nowadays owned by Heineken, you've got great distribution. You've got long established networks. You can get into airports all over the place because you're sending them hundreds of cases of Amarula anyway. So you may as well chuck in some distel wines into the mix there as well. But for producers like yourself, which are not producing millions of bottles, but you're producing thousands of bottles, I've also seen you in like the Dubai duty free and Frankfurt duty free and um, and the Heathrow duty duty-free, you've got a presence in these places, but that must be quite an expensive exercise from a distribution point of view, because you can't be sending out big barrels of wine and sort of bottling in market, can you? Uh, absolutely right, and I think you uh, hit the nail on the head, which, which almost raises what I believe is one of the Achilles heel of the South African wine industry, an industry where um, a lot of the top wines are really shooting the lights out, uh, wines that are are, are being rated higher than many of the great wines in the world. But the Achilles heel actually is that most of the top wines from South Africa are produced in volumes that are too small. And let me just explain that. If you wanted to be in Dubai duty-free, you need to guarantee them supply for an entire year. Similarly, if you wanted to be in a three michelin star restaurant in New York or Tokyo, it doesn't help if you can only supply them one case. And so um, I think that will be the next evolution of the top end of the South African wine industry where we develop brands that can actually supply. Um, and I, I think it's a, an exciting challenge for an industry that's already at the top end um, making great strides. And you know what it is what I've, what I'm finding so interesting about top end wines in South Africa is just the sort of scores and they have some famous wine judges around the world. I think Tim Aitken is one of the most respected worldwide, and he's giving some South African wines, including one of your own. I think it's the Series C, like you know almost full marks. 
which I don't, once you get to 98, I'm not too sure what else you meant to do to get to, to get a good rating. And, you know, usually the only way from there is down. But it, it's a, a huge acknowledgement, isn't it, of what crafting grapes can deliver? It's very difficult to quantify something as subjective as, it, as wine. Similarly, a rating agency pronouncing on South Africa's credit readiness uh, might raise some eyebrows. But at the same time, over time, these critics um, rise to prominence because uh, more and more people consider them to be important. And so I think it is wonderful. It's, it's wonderful to see that, um, you know, on the, the massive rating scales, which is generally a 100-point scale, that, that we've already had two or three wines that are rated 100 points. Even this year, the most influential critic in the world, which is the Robert Parker Wine Advocates, have, have you know, given two, two wines 99 points. But I think that, again, the nuance here is that it's not about the one or two South African wines that are shooting the lights out. It's this vastly diversified and growing group of smaller producers who now are collectively bolstering the A-team of South African wine and doing a great job, whereas in the past it was a small handful of wineries. Now it's a big collective group, and that's exciting. Thank you very much to Mike Ratcliffe, the owner at Villa Fonte, and who's also the chair at the Stell Wine Route. Always insight, always great insights uh, from Mike Ratcliffe. After Eyewitness News, uh, we are going to look at a worrying report that suggests that the number of people starting their own businesses is plummeting. We'll find out why after Eyewitness News. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On Nights 2.7 and 106 FM. I did have to go and look at my share trading uh, application, uh, which gives me all the pricing of assets on the JSE and on commodity markets and on currency markets. And I listened to Mike Reedy Eyewitness News, and she said, and gold at $2,060 an ounce. I went, oh, what, what, what? At half past five this afternoon, gold was about 2020 dollars an ounce. It's had a big jump up in the last hour and a half or so, and I have checked because I just thought I misheard that. And the yeah, the gold price, $2,060 an ounce, which translates to more than 38,000 rand an ounce. And in kilograms, so for a piece of gold, um, roughly the size of an iPhone 13, 14, 15, roughly that sort of size, that's about a kilogram of gold, that would cost about 1.2 million rand. 1.2 million rand for a kilo of gold. Uh, makes it very worthwhile to mine. What a pity we don't have as much as we used to because we mined it all already. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. If you'd asked me the question rather than given me the fact, I'm not too sure what I would have said. Uh, but fewer people are starting businesses. And it's according to the 2023 Global Entrepreneurship Monitor, South Africa. The report looks at early stage entrepreneurial activity, which they say has declined to pre-pandemic levels, below pre-pandemic levels. It means fewer people than ever, certainly in the last 20 years, are considering starting a new business. Anecdotally, that aligns with my own observation as a team. We're finding it increasingly difficult to find exciting founder and startup stories to share with you. 
because there's just not that many around. So if you've got any ideas, 31702, 31567, what are we missing? Because we desperately need to get into the minds of South Africa's very, very creative entrepreneurs. Well, Angus Bowmaker Falconer is the lead author of the Stellenbosch Business School South Africa Entrepreneurship Monitor Project. What is the, the reason why most South Africans start businesses? Uh, let's, let's start there, Angus. Hi, Bruce, and thanks for having me, and uh, good evening to your listeners. So, um, the... the no, no, I, thought you, I thought you missed the question. Sorry, there's a slight delay here, Angus. So, what is the reason why most South Africans are, you know, reluctant? And, you know, they're reluctant starters of businesses, but they, what is the main reason they do go down what is quite a dangerous path? Yes, I think uh, the, the general population in South Africa, which is the study we do, um, mostly start businesses, to be honest, um, out of necessity um, compared to the, um, the, the high-growth startups. High-growth startups um, are, are, are deep ideation and, um, and are, are destined to grow uh, or fail. But in this study, we look at the general population and the level of entrepreneurial activity. And right now, and, and uh, bef- both before and during the pandemic, um, our, our sense is that most people got involved in entrepreneurial activity out of necessity. Yeah, and that's and and again, those are survivalist businesses, most of them, um, because people go there because they can't simply get a job. This economy is not generating the number of jobs we need to absorb people into the mainstream economy. That's why people go out and create the hustle. Who, who you know, some succeed. Sadly, the vast majority are likely to fail. Correct, correct. Um, I think that um, what, what you've seen um, during the pandemic was this crazy spike in entrepreneurial activity uh, in South Africa. And we also saw that in, in many other developing countries, especially uh, Latin America. And that really just tells the story that people needed to go and find alternate uh, ways of generating income. And that is the, the fundamental story. Obviously, layered above that, we had, we had incredibly uh, innovative startups in, in South Africa. But this story is the one of the general population. So then tell me about the environment and how difficult it is to start. Because if businesses exist to solve problems, and we believe this is the case, you see a gap because there's a problem that nobody else is addressing, you go in and you address the problem. I find it a bit depressing that fewer and fewer people are trying to do that because we're not a country that is short of problems. Sure, 100%. Um, um, So I think being an entrepreneur in South Africa is not easy. Um, and the study does look at the entrepreneurial framework conditions that support the possibility uh, of entrep- entrepreneurs succeeding. And if we look at those scores, um, and these scores have been low for a while, um, you know, there's not one single uh, one of those framework conditions where South Africa scores sufficiently. And we're one of only three countries in the study, so it's us and Tongo uh, and Tunisia, that score insufficient on all dimensions. People need certainty, or at least some, there's no such thing as certainty. People need some certainty when committing capital to an idea. 
Um, they need to know that they can exit. They need to know that if it all goes pear-shaped, they don't lose the shirts on their backs. They also need to know what potential is there is in the management team and what how strong the idea is. But South Africa is not a particularly supportive. It's getting better, I think. But it's not the world's most supportive environment when it comes to taking smart ideas and developing them into businesses. I think you're quite right. I mean, I think, you know, markets and networks are fundamentals. I mean, I think they're even more critical than finance. Obviously, finance is always a challenge. But markets and networks, you know, this study is done at, at, a, at, a, at a national level. But if you take this down to a regional level, you, you'll see how uh, the, so outside of cities, there's even less uh, opportunities and supports and networks for new ideas, good ideas, problem-solving ideas. Yeah, that's the trouble, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, uh, the the 13 enabling conditions for entrepreneurship, and unfortunately, uh, we're not going to go through all 13, but we are not cracking the code of entrepreneurship. And we're in an environment where people are apprehensive about the future and where people are apprehensive, they don't put money on the table, they hold their ideas close, hoping that times get better into the future. If we if we can take one of those 13 things, the enabling conditions, and tackle it in the next couple of weeks, what is the one thing that would have the biggest multiplier effect on encouraging people to take action on their big ideas, Angus? Well, I think, firstly, the, the, the policy environment should be more friendly to startups. And there needs to be exceptions. Um, and, you know, if you look at the, the big startup cities across the world, those cities have made exceptions for startups. And we don't have that. Um, we just don't have that in South Africa. Um, the government spends an enormous amount of money on programs either to finance or to, um, to support entrepreneurial development. And from our study we see that people are unaware of these opportunities uh, and what they might offer. Um, clearly, our physical infrastructure is a big challenge, but access to finance has to have a different nuance. Uh, the conditions and the terms by which entrepreneurs can, can lend money um, uh, are still archaic. They're based on um, whether you are creditworthy only, you know, rather than whether your, your idea is good or whether... You have other credentials that show that you will be able to repay whatever finance you raise. Yeah, it's that, I, that idea yeah. that, yeah, it's, it's just this, this, this weird thing is people look at history rather than at the potential of the entrepreneur and the potential of the idea. That's harder to measure. That's harder to quantify, isn't it? No, it is. But I mean, this, isn't, that, isn't, that what the, um, isn't that what the challenge is? There, there are other countries in the world where different criteria are used uh, to, to think about financing. And we are still, you know, what's happened with FinTech is, yes, it's easier to engage. It's easier to see what's available. Um, but the rules are still the same. So, so it, it's about accessibility rather than probability that you might get some assistance. Angus, thank you very much indeed. Angus Bowmaker-Falconer, who is the lead author of the Stellenbosch Business School South Africa Entrepreneurship Monitor Report. Big title for an important report. Um, and yeah, most, fewer and fewer South Africans are keen on starting businesses. I, I think 
Uh, intellectually, I know that based on the fact that we're just getting fewer and fewer pictures from people saying, hey, I've created a new version of how to stand in your head. It's sort of like do yoga in your sleep stuff um, or whatever the case might be because some people do have crazy ideas um, and we're just not getting those same pictures coming through. In a moment, Martin Matsejo, who is the Head of Investor Readiness at Fatola, and this is the really difficult topic of convincing others to invest in you and your company, taking the discussion with Angus just that little bit further. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA is a registered FSP. One of the hardest things that you will ever have to do as an entrepreneur is not the idea or executing on the idea. It's to convince other people to invest in your company. I was talking to the chief executive of a very successful South African company, which has grown strongly since inception and has gone through several large successful capital raisings. And he was saying how they got about 100 rejections the management team, the startup group that pulled this thing together, they were so dejected as founders that they all kind of gave up at the same time. They sort of retreated into themselves and then went back to their day jobs because suddenly it was just too hard. And no sooner had they been willing to capitulate that the first breakthrough happened. And ever since then, it's been running like a jet-fueled steam train. It's been absolutely astonishing. Martin Matejo, who is the Head of Investment Readiness at Fatola, how do we make our business investable? How do we dress up this thing which doesn't live, breathe or eat? But how do we dress it up in a way that will encourage other people to see the opportunity we believe exists in our big idea. Mm. Oh, good, good evening. Evening, yeah. Good evening, um, Bruce. It's a it's a tricky one because I mean the best way to relate it would be in who do you lend money to? You know, um, the idea would be to put yourself in the shoes of the lender and think about what they need to see. You know, when you wake up in the morning and you get a text from a random individual that you have no familiarity with, you know, would you be willing to engage with them and actually part of money? Probably not, you know. So there's an element of the relationship building that doesn't exist. You know, our entrepreneurs are sitting in their little boxes and trying to make the most of what, what they're doing. Um, I love what Prof said earlier about, you know, at the core, they're, ma- they're mainly survivalist in nature. So they don't develop that relationship. They don't have that trust. And by the time it gets to starting up a application, you know, they don't know how to appeal to the investor. So, it's a bit of a tricky one. Um, it's an iterative journey, but it all begins with actually knowing who you're going to. And you only know who your potential funders are by going out to meet all funders because you you don't know where your idea is going to land. And that's why you're kissing mm-hmm. frogs each and every single mm-hmm. day until one of them turns into the fairy tale prince um, or princess, I suppose, depending on your proclivities. But it's it's this <laughs> this idea that you have to go in there ready for rejection because, frankly, very few people are going to share your 
excitement about the mm. thing that you build. Mm. Yep, and you know, the, I, the, the problem is you would be, in, as an entrepreneur, you'd be so excited and so self-induced by what you have built that you don't wait to gauge whether there is an alignment with your potential investor or your audience on whether or not you are aligned on where, you know, we can go together. You know, the conversation then gets lost there and in, you know, all the excitement and, you know, the blood, sweat and tears, the articulation of where you are going then gets lost as well. You know, you can't even explain properly what opportunities there are. You can't explain how you are, you know, you've been tagging it out all this time throughout, you know, to make this thing somewhat of a success. And, you know, a key component of that then leads into your financial management, you know. Are you able to produce the numbers? And those numbers, that element, is such a critical factor that because they get so stuck in building the business, they don't build a track record with it as well. There's no visibility of that. And that is unfortunately where it all falls apart most of the time. When does a business typically need funding? Because, I mean, so many people go to look for funding quite quickly, others hold off as long as possible and actually constrain their ability to grow because with a little bit of money, um, that would have boosted their chances at a particular point in time. Is there a sort of a, a magical point? Day 99 at lunchtime is the best time to get funding or whatever it might be. <laughs> I mean... What, uh, what time do you go to sleep? You know, it's, a, it's that type of a question. Um, but ideally, you're looking more at when you reach a ceiling, you know, and as an entrepreneur, you would know. You would feel that at this point, there's not much to do except maybe diversify what I'm doing. And that is the point at which you now need to um, go out looking. Or you actually have opportunities available at your disposal but you do not have enough money to go for them. So that's when you then go out. Or, and more importantly, when you want to grow faster. So you have the means, you have everything at your disposal, you just need to start running, and there's no juice in the tank. And, you know, an investment gets you there a bit quicker, provided then there's all the measures around it in place to make sure that you don't go crashing into a brick wall. Yeah, and then, uh, again, people also forget the amount of preparation that it takes to ready yourself for this investment because it's not like you can accept the investment if and when it comes and then go, excellent, thank you so much. I'm going to pop that into the current account and when we're ready, we're going to apply this money very well. Just trust us. And six months later, <laughs> the funder goes and looks and the money's still sitting in under somebody's mattress or in somebody's couch or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. Look, at its core, the business needs to thrive on sales, right? You need to make money as an entrepreneur. That's, that's the core, the core anchor of it all. That's, that's your best source of funding. If then you need to now go out, and that is assuming that your sales aren't enough to cover exactly what you're trying to do. The main thing that you start off with, as we alluded to in the beginning, is you need to build that relationship. Go out, out there. Go start engaging, start mingling. The networking sessions are kind of low. The breakfast, the breakfast, the dinners, whatever the case may be. Get you out there. Let the market know who you are. Let them acknowledge you. 
Then from there, it's just the building of the trust. You know, you have that visibility, you have a website, you have um, that bit of credibility that allows, you know, an investor when they're sitting at home having lunch um, or supper and they're saying, hey, I met this most interesting guy, telling their partner or whatever the case may be, and the partner can just do a Google search and pop, there you are. You know, it's, 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 it's small things that may feel trivial, um, you know, when you're talking about them, but they actually build a lot of the investment case um, that, you know, the individual that you're going to approach will eventually build up of you. Then is your track record. Now, how they've built their business, making sure that it's visible. You know, the numbers need to be clear. Um, if they're not doing it, then you need to start doing it at some point. But providing that track record and knowing exactly how you're going to pay back whatever it is. If you're getting a grant, you need to pay it back in reporting and impact measurement. If you're getting debt, you need to know exactly whether you can cover the interest. You know, it's that's it's all self-preparation that begins before you even approach the investor. And that in itself is already halfway of the journey done. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Um, again, uh, rejection is part of this process. And you don't mm. want to go in expecting to be rejected because otherwise you go in and your hands are ringing and you're apologizing for being there and saying, you know, you're the 74th person I've met and everyone else has hated the idea, but I'm sure you're going to love it. And it's that ability to go in and, uh, I mean, I just talked to the CEO I mentioned earlier, um, chatting to them last week, and uh, somebody who tells the story of rejection very well is Sarah Blakely, um, who started the business Spanx. And she was trying to get something as simple as a prototype of a product made, and she had the fabric, but she needed specialized equipment and skills to stitch to make the garments she wanted to show off. And she went from garment production facility to garment production facility and all of these guys who were usually considerably older took one look at her and said what you're trying to achieve is impossible please don't waste my time go away but she'd been a door-to-door salesperson i think of photocopiers or something equally annoying like when you've got one you really don't need seven this year and people keep knocking on your door but she got so used to being told no that it made us tough as nails. So that by the time mm. somebody said yes, she was ready. Mm. And she was ready mm. to go out of the starting blocks, not jogging, but sprinting. Mm. Now, the, the funnel needs to be that big. I mean, you know, you pour all of your ingredients right at the top of the funnel and you just hope that something comes out down at the bottom and whatever comes out there is then what you are ideally going to treasure. So I think that's, you know, you cast your net as far and wide as possible. It's not, and maybe again, um, connected to what um, Prof was saying earlier, it's the awareness of knowing just how much money is available out there. You know, there's hundreds, almost thousands of funders, you know, that are currently roaming the streets in SA alone. Uh, and it's just the awareness and doing the research, the right level of preparation to find out who exists and is doing what, what are they interested in. That's, you know, starting the net that wide big and just start funneling it through, you know, refining it. Okay, these guys only invest in my type of business, but only when I'm making more than 10 sales. Then these guys are looking for me, but only when I'm making more than 20,000, right? You know, all of those things, you just add on your own little layers of criteria as you're doing your research. It eventually starts funneling, but you're still throwing the net in. You're still throwing your hat in 
you know, you never know. You might win a lottery now and again. Um, but <laughs> it's all about the learning that you take from each rejection. You know, yeah. all of them build character over and over. And eventually, you'll get a thick skin and someone will turn you back into a softie. No, but exactly. And it, it's that, that that consistent resilience. And it's exhausting. Oh, my goodness me, it's exhausting. Martin, thank you. Martin Matejo, who is the head of investment readiness at Fatola this evening. Some really good advice on how to make your business investable. Rule number one, don't give up. Coming up. Eyewitness News, followed by our investment school. But first, at half past seven, it's time for Mikey Malapo now with the very latest in Eyewitness News. The Money Show. Investment School. Investment School brought to you by Bidvest Bank. Bidvest Bank, built for your business. This evening, Viv Governor, Portfolio Manager at Rand Swiss, looking at the obsession that we have with Elon Musk. And I say we because I think we all do. If you're not obsessed with Elon Musk, either uh, through sheer ambivalence and your desperation to hear nothing about him or your adoration of what he's achieved or your repugnance at what he represents in some instances, certainly you can't deny an interesting guy. And he's created some fabulous businesses. So let's zoom out for just a second and just look at one of his most commercially successful businesses to date, and that is Tesla. What do we learn, Viv Govinder, from the lessons that we, we, we learn from directly from Elon Musk and his massive ability to build businesses, and particularly Tesla, which is the lion's share, of course, of his personal wealth? I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's uh, about half his, his total wealth. I think there's SpaceX, don't forget, is also a multi, it's called this uh, billion dollar company. And uh, we don't, and Twitter, even after the collapse, is still worth a few billion. Uh, but yes, what we learned was that Tesla's, uh, you know, uh, revenue only grew by 3% in the last period, uh, you know, despite significantly more, you know, sales. And this is because he's cutting prices. He always had said, I mean, uh, if you look back at, you know, uh, his tapers from early on that he's only going to charge as much for Tesla as is necessary to keep, uh, you know, shareholders minimally happy. Uh, but he really wants to basically have the company, you know, change electric vehicles uh, or push electric vehicles into the into the towards the mainstream and you know uh, to save the environment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, this was always part of his plan, but uh, you know, no one actually believed him up perhaps uh, that he was going to do it. So. Uh, we did see, you know, massive price cuts for Tesla's last year. Uh, you know, it was multiple in the year for some vehicles, uh, and that has translated to, you know, obviously, you guys can imagine lower revenue. Yeah, and and yeah, Tesla's coming under a bit of pressure at the moment, and people are wondering whether or not the magic has finally worn off because, uh, essentially, Elon Musk didn't create the battery-powered vehicle category, but my goodness gracious me, he created the competition that's necessary in order to shake the rest of the world's massive manufacturers out of their ambivalence towards EVs. They were like, oh, yeah, they'll come one day, but right now the internal combustion engine rules the roost, and it's a bit like the computer revolution. Those who resisted it, got overtaken, and in many cases, big car manufacturers were caught napping. Yes, but I mean, even now, you'd be surprised. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, Ford has a Ford F-150 Lightning, uh, but they're cutting production on that. And you look at GM also, they're pulling back from their electric vehicle 
plans. He's still making electric vehicles at a quality and at a quantity and a price level that seems to be something that others cannot achieve at the moment, uh, other than in China. I mean, the Chinese manufacturers are definitely catching up. And I think you did mention uh, that, you know, unless there's some kind of you know, trade restrictions or something. The Chinese guys are going to come eat everybody's lunch, basically. Uh, but in in terms of like a Western manufacturer, especially for somebody that's producing in places like the US, uh, he is, you know, pretty much the only game that really seems to be pushing electric vehicles still, uh, despite, like you mentioned, the fact that it does appear that that's the way of the future. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, how are the EV sector, I think, is starting to come a little unstuck. I mean, we would in one of our signals feature the other day, we did Hertz, um, the, uh, the the car hire company, and it was reducing its EV fleets. The cars are too expensive to repair when they get when they crash. They uh, are, you know, the, the dangers of keeping the batteries going too long and then having to replace the batteries becomes very expensive. And it almost feels like, you know, the hype cycle of the EV is over, not the use case, but certainly the initial hype of it and the, the imminence of the death of the internal combustion engine also overly exaggerated in the short term. So uh, some EV may will be doing better than others, surely. Yes, it, it does seem to be that it's either the Chinese or it's Tesla. Uh, very few of the of, of the Western producers out there are, are really making you know much in terms of uh, gains in the sector. Like I said, the bigger manufacturers are you know kind of pulling back. Uh, with regards to EVs, you know, there's advantages to them, but one of the advantages is not their initial pricing, and so you often need to have these massive government subsidies coming through, uh, you know, for uh, this, uh to make the initial purchase, you know, reasonable. If you want to compare, like, you know, how much we're looking at, we're looking at, you know, often multiple thousands of dollars, uh, you know, a significant percentage of uh, the initial uh, price of the vehicle. And then afterwards, of course, uh, you know, the EVs work best if you uh, have a house that has, you know, a solar and which you could charge your car, et cetera, et cetera. It works good in the suburbs, but it may not work, you know, great in uh, the city. At the same time, EVs don't have the range generally of petrol vehicles. So if you live further from people uh, than the suburbs, maybe they not be the safest way for you to travel around. And also, another thing with EVs, they don't like the cold that much. So if you live in the northern hemisphere, it gets a bit too cold. Your battery doesn't work as it normally does. No, exactly. I mean, the, the, nothing is perfect. And there's a huge evolution that still has to happen in the technology. And certainly if you, you know, you go around different cities in the world, they are actively encouraging with punitive measures to ensure that you are driving cars that are compliant with, with emissions, for example. Um, and so that I think, you know, the, the, the use case is very much there. Um, is there room for improvement? Absolutely. Uh, I mentioned earlier this week that astonishing 2018 pay packet that Elon Musk got himself. And uh, a shareholder went off to court and said, sorry, but this is unreasonable. This trillion rand, it's more impressive than whatever the dollar number is, this trillion rand pay package um, is just excessive. And the judge said, yeah, I agree with you. It's like, almost like the remuneration committee of, e, of, uh, of Tesla was taken in. Uh, by Elon Musk and was just blown away by his charisma and his presence and his capabilities and they would have paid anything to him and it's it's an astonishing um, sort of backtracking on an, probably the world's biggest pay deal to date. Oh yeah, I mean, to give you guys an idea just how big it is, in 2021, if you added up the compensation of the 200 highest paid executives other than Musk, it was basically less than Elon Musk's payday, basically. 
Um, that being said, it, uh, this is one thing in which I'm actually going to be on the side of bus because if, if it, it's always easy to look at the hindsight and say, oh, it's it's excessive because obviously the company would have done, you know, what it's done, you know, otherwise. But when the deal was done back in 2018, uh, like you mentioned, five years ago or so, the company was worth less than one tenth of what it's worth right now. He's added something like $550 billion of value. Uh, you know, taking 10% of that value may be a bit excessive, but it, it's still, you know, not a case where he's not added value to it. And the one thing I would add to that is that, uh, unlike some people who add value just by pure luck, you know, okay, I bought this company, whatever. I'm willing to bet right now, if he was to leave the company, that the value hit for shareholders would be significantly in excess of $50 billion. Uh, I would easily see the price falling a couple hundred billion in terms of market capitalization. Right now, it's worth just under $600 billion, $583 billion or so. If you had Elon Musk leave, the loss to shareholders would be in excess of $56 billion. And um, another thing to mention as well, but this is something I'm not as on his side about, is the fact that even both before this happened here, he was talking about the fact that he wanted a greater share of the voting rights of Tesla, if not uh, you know, actual shares. The reason being is that he's looking for where to create his AI company. Uh, and... Uh, you know, he has multiple options. He has, uh, you know, obviously we know Tesla, but he also has Twitter. Uh, you know, Grok already on Twitter is, uh, you know, the uh, a, a reasonably, you know, well, uh, you know, regarded, uh, uh, you know, this uh, LLM, large language model. There's also SpaceX, which is obviously, you know, another gigantic company, uh, you know, multiple, you know, over $100 billion in valuation of that company. And he could create that there, I think, maybe some, uh, you know, uh, issues, but it's 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 still something where you could be creating it. It's it's worth roughly forty percent of, or a third roughly of what uh, uh, Tesla is worth. So it's, it's not a peanuts company. And if you did create AI out of Tesla, if you look at Tesla's actual valuation right now, there's no way Tesla can be valued as a car company alone. It's worth more than its nearest competitors combined. You know, you look at uh, Toyota, you look at VW, you look at Ford, you look at GM. I mean, if you just look at, for instance, the, the market capitalization of GM, and 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 you and you look at the compared to the basically uh, the market capitalization of Tesla, uh, GM is worth less than one tenth of what Tesla is worth. Yet GM produces vastly more ve vehicles than Tesla does, and the reason for that is that a lot of the value of Tesla is about the future, about full self driving, about you know the Optimus uh, robots, about AI coming in and doing these things for you, uh, and it's unknown if any car company can actually achieve those kind of technological advances in the current environment, if not run by Elon Musk, because at the moment it seems that the only person that has produced a car company can do that is Elon Musk. It's terrifying though, that you put such a high premium on, it's effectively the goodwill of Musk. I mean, if you look at any balance sheet and there's a, a line that says goodwill, any company that out of a market cap of, what, yeah, 500 billion said, you know, uh, goodwill of 50 billion, you, you would question whether or not it was worth investing in. You know, Elon Musk walks out the door or is, I don't know, caught in an EV fire or whatever the case might be. And that's a very significant risk, isn't it, for anybody who's putting money into what is already a very expensive share. Oh, yes, most certainly. But, 
But here's the thing, for whatever reason, maybe it's because of his slight insanity, uh, which, you know, is not something we can disc- you know, totally discount. He's, he's, he's definitely not a normal, you know, a children's, uh, thinking no, kind of guy, you know what I mean? Uh, he, he's, not a co- he's not a common person. I mean, he is, whether you appreciate his politics, whether you like the way he does things, he certainly is an outlier from his, the way he approaches issues, problems, and the way he runs his businesses. Yeah, and, and if you look at the, the industries, I mean, this is the weird thing. Okay, if you have to look at all the industries that are really, uh, you know, significant, so you look at AI, you look at uh, self-driving vehicles, look at electric vehicles, look at space travel, you look at the latest in, you know, I, I think you talked about it recently about, you know, the brain computer, uh, which was machine interface uh, with yeah. Neuralink. These are all incredibly powerful things. And in AI, yeah, you say, okay, it's not a, really an AI, but if you look at the two biggest or the two main AI companies out there, which is right now, OpenAI and you know DeepMind from Google, he basically helped found OpenAI and he was one of the first investors in DeepMind. Uh, and now he's basically created Grok. So he's obviously a player in that space. In, in full self-driving, in electric vehicles, obviously Tesla. In space vehicles, uh, you know, uh, with, with rockets, uh, SpaceX has a huge advantage over the nearest competitor. Uh, the, uh, the majority of, of, of new launches into space globally are done by like SpaceX rockets at the moment. If you think about that, he's, he's, he's absolutely dominant in, in, in space technology. And now this Neuralink thing, which, you know, if you look at the actual stuff that he says about Neuralink, and you can't discount it, and you look at the possibility, technical possibility of it, uh, honestly, it, it, if you had if you to ask me, I would say that's actually the most ambitious of all his companies. Uh, nothing that Tesla or SpaceX or uh, called us, uh, uh, Twitter slash X is going to do approaches how much Neuralink can change the world. Um, and it's not just about, you know, obviously, uh, initially it's going to be used for, you know, healing people that are paralyzed or allowing them to communicate, et cetera, et cetera. But you take that technology 10, say 20 years into the future with the normal, you know, advances you see with computer technology where they speed up every couple of years and they get smaller and cheaper and so on. And you just kind of put it 20 years in the future and see what can this thing do? And you're looking at something that's absolutely terrifying uh, in terms of its capacity. The, the the some some people. I mean, we saw it with Sam Altman um, at OpenAI and the company that runs OpenAI, and his board wrongly, I believe, his board got agitated by him. We got they got sick of him, and they booted him out. And then you know, after his interventions from Satya Nadella at um, at Microsoft, um, you know, the board members disappeared, and he, he made a comeback to Sam Altman. I wonder if there isn't a, a mounting level of frustration with Elon Musk, where boards may make knee-jerk decisions um, that could be damaging for shareholders, um, because you know, ultimately, nobody is irreplaceable, of course. Not even Elon Musk, I would suspect. Well, of course, as, as the saying goes, the cemetery is full of irreplaceable people, uh, you know, and, and so everybody is replaceable. The, the problem is that at the moment, for whatever reason, it may be maybe the corporate culture in the West. It could be maybe there's something wonderful about our water in South Africa, uh, you know, or our teaching or whatever. Uh, Musk seems to be uniquely capable of running these particular kinds of companies, attracting the talent that they can make them successful. Uh, because there's other people out there that, I mean, if it's Jeff Bezos, he's playing in space, 
right? Uh, he's got as much money, in fact, more real money, if you think about it. And, you know, Musk has paper money in terms of, like, you know, yeah, his valuation is this much, but he doesn't really have access to those funds as easily as, for instance, Jeff Bezos does. Uh, you know, and he's trying to play in that space. And he's not really as successful as Musk has, nowhere near as successful. Uh, and he, for whatever reason, like, Musk seems to have a unique genius for this. But you are right. I mean, uh, having dependence like this on a particular individual is quite difficult. The only problem is, like I said before, the number of companies that he has that are leaders in areas that you really need to be invested in if you have you know, uh, any belief in these technologies uh, means that it's almost unavoidable, unavoidable. If you want to invest in you know, electric vehicles, I can invest in Rivian. Or you know, because Nikola, I think Nikola is, is is basically bankrupt or or or, or, or discontinued or something at the moment, or Tesla, which is many many multiple times bigger. If you want to look at space travel, like you buy Boeing, or when uh, SpaceX, if it ever does this, would you want to buy SpaceX shares? Uh, and you see, the, that's the issue. Or Neuralink. I mean, if it was a listed company, would you want to have a few percent of your of your assets into them like that? There, mm-hmm. you probably would. So the problem is that there's there's almost no alternative at the moment for whatever reason uh, to some of the things that he's producing. Yeah, but what is the price you're prepared to pay? Because we've seen so many really good ideas, um, you know, market leading ideas over decades and centuries become usurped obsolete because the, the, you know just they are the leading innovators of the moment and suddenly are overtaken and um, very quickly blackberry for example is a recent one we've been talking about and and just how you can be here today and gone tomorrow and that's quite terrifying as well considering that disruptors too eventually get disrupted well, certainly, but you look at BlackBerry, the guy that disrupted BlackBerry was uh, another person, kind of like Elon Musk, which is a very troublesome, or very uh, uh, problematic genius. Steve Jobs, uh, you know, if yeah. You, yeah, Steve Jobs. I mean, if you, if you look at Steve Jobs' history, uh, he makes Elon Musk, in certain cases, look like uh, like Mother Teresa. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, for instance, at one point in time, his, his child, his daughter, was on welfare while he was a billionaire. I mean, that is something that's that's pretty crazy. And if you look at just how he treated some of the people he worked with, etc. Oh, no. uh, nice uh, yeah, he, he, he was not a nice person. I mean, uh, he believed for, at one point in time because he was vegan that he needed to bath. And if, because he's, because the vegan doesn't clean his, his body or whatever. So he was absolutely smelly. Uh, but yet, uh, it was not just uh, you know the iPhone and the the, the, the iPad and the iPod, etc. He made. He also was involved in making a Pixar. Uh, people forget about that. Of course. Uh, so absolutely. he's had, a, yeah, yeah. So it, it, sometimes these geniuses, and uh, you can you can argue what you want to about uh, you know because uh, uh, Jobs's issues, but there's no doubt that investing in the products that Jobs made, uh, such as Apple back in the day, was valuable. And thus far, it has also been true that anyone that's invested in you know Elon Musk's company so far have you know usually raked in many many times returns. On the initial investment so uh, uh, yes of course if he does start to have a bunch of losses in a row i think that'll change very quickly and you have no goodwill uh if you're if you're a, if you're a genius or sorry if you're a troublesome person or problematic person that doesn't produce however if you are a problematic person that does produce the world is very forgiving no exactly right well the world's greedy so i mean it'll it'll forgive the, the sins of the powerful and the uh, and the smart and the capable who make the money far more 
than it will forgive those that don't deliver the results. It's not fair, but hey, that's the way, unfortunately, the world works. The the, the investment case then for Tesla, even at at a a very, very high valuation, it's a growth company. It's an innovative company. It is a company that is reshaping the world. Uh, are we willing to throw away the Benjamin Gu- uh, Buff- uh, the Benjamin Buffett, uh, the Benjamin Graham Warren Buffett uh, sort of value investing philosophy on this one, and simply just go for it in the belief that it is will grow into the current valuation? Look, I mean, he, he, here's the valuation of Tesla and where it comes from. So it's nothing to do with the vehicles. I mean, uh, if Tesla basically never achieves its goals around AI, self-driving, et cetera, robo-taxis and the Optimus, and just remains a car company that's growing like it is right now, its valuation is a fraction of what it is at the moment. So you'd be losing more than half the value of the company. If, on the other hand, it does actually get those things to work, its valuation right now is a fraction of its future value. So it'll be money multiple times that value in the future. So obviously, whether or not you invest in it has almost nothing to do with, with just the pure electric vehicle thing. Whether or not you like the, you know, the, the cyber truck and you think it's a nice shape or whatever, that's unimportant. Oh, what no. the, the real value is, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes no difference to the world. But the real valuation of Tesla comes from, uh, I would say that it is uniquely purpose, it's uniquely positioned to uh, work with AI. Now, AI has really developed over the last few years. I mean, getting you know uh, some ideas to what it takes to develop an AI. You need a lot of data. You need uh, a lot of money to basically buy the computers to basically work with the data, and you need to apply the data to that uh, those computers. That what gets that's what gets you these workable models. And they're not just the large language models like we talked about. They're also things like GNOME from uh, Alphabet Google, which is basically uh, a material science kind of thing. It's AlphaFold. It's you know all these programs. You can get an output that handles that data as long as you have data that basically is large enough and you have enough computing power to work with. Tesla's advantage is it has tons of data. It has something like 150 billion frames of data coming to it every day on, on, on the physical world. Once a car can drive the world because it understands how the world works, you can make a robot also operate in that world. You can make, you know, uh, like the Optimus, basically, with the AI that can operate in the world, is suddenly as valuable as a worker, a normal human worker. You know, not five thousand or ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars. It's probably worth fifty or sixty or hundred thousand dollars in valuation a year, if you think about it. And a worker that works nonstop, doesn't make mistakes, twenty-four hours a day. Uh, what yeah. could that be? You know, worth in the global economy. And so that's the valuation of Tesla. It's the future. The question is, do you believe in AI? The question is, do you believe that Musk, uh, you know, we haven't even mentioned the fact that the Wall Street Journal recently accused him of abusing, uh, you know, certain substances. Um, so Musk stays stable enough to keep that going and builds it in Tesla. But if it does, you know, if you believe those two things, uh, I think you're going to find very few people out there that think that any other car company is going to catch up with Tesla, uh, you know, in terms of the full self-driving or the kind of physical AI stuff that we're talking about. Uh, and so, yeah, it's that's the investment case for, t- for Tesla. It is not uh, basically the new Cybertruck. And, and the thing is, its greatest asset is also its poten- potentially its greatest liability. And those are the one and the same thing, and those are Elon Musk. Yeah, and the example I would use is, is, is of course, uh, no one wishes to turn out here. Just look up at the history of Howard Hughes, the guy that was the topic for the movie The Aviator with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. Also, yeah. genius, right? And uh, he ended up in a very bad place at the end. Uh, so, uh, you know, genius yeah. often doesn't, uh, you know, result in, in permanent stability, but uh, 
while this thing is running, it, like I said, it, the opportunity in it is just too large to just ignore it entirely. But yeah, there are there are many cautionary tales historically about people that do behave like this. Thank you, Viv Govinda, Portfolio Manager at Rand Swiss this evening on our Investment School.